so the Israelites knew that he was real, but they don't know him to be good, and so therefore they're afraid of him. And not knowing him to be good, they seek the goodness that they want from other places. Holy Spirit comes to you with an offer of repentance, that offer must be taken right then because there is no assurance that that offer will come again. We know from Paul's words to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6, that when the Holy Spirit acts upon a heart and is offering the gift of repentance, that should be taken, that should be jumped upon, that should be responded to immediately. Now is not the time for the false prophets to repent. God may give them their their opportunity. But now is not their opportunity. So Elijah hears something like Paul, as Paul shakes the dust from his feet to the Jews and says, I've brought to you the gospel of Messiah. You've rejected, rejected, rejected. So I shake the dust off my feet. Not to to say that I'm done with you or I give up on you. but, But that was a gesture of saying, you are not God's people. So Paul shakes the dust from his sandals to the Jews to go to the Gentiles. Here is is another form of that, only it's reversed, where Elijah is shaking the dust from his sandals towards the Gentiles and turning to the Jews and saying, now is your time for repentance. Now is your time in which the Holy Spirit is coming to you in power and He's saying to you, this is your opportunity for repentance. Take it. So he pleads with them for a change of heart, which is, by the way, all biblical preaching takes as its goal repentance, conversion, change of heart. That's the goal of all biblical preaching. Biblical preaching never has as its goal just the knowledge, just dispensing knowledge, just learning more about the Bible. That's not what biblical preaching is for. All of that is for the ultimate goal of heart change, repentance, conversion, sanctification, growth in, 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 uh, in our faith. And so this is what, this is what Elijah is saying to them. The, the whole reason I'm here is for heart change, for your heart change. So he says, he, he came near to all the people and said, here's the words that were given. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? What a, Poetic, striking way for Elijah to put it. Limping between two opinions. As you might guess, that word limping is a rich word that could be translated a number of different ways. It has the meaning of, uh, of uh, wavering, vacillating, of uncertainty. It also has the meaning of, as our ESV translates it, limping. So it has the, the, a sense of unsteadiness as though one is going from one opinion to another, but he's not doing it on sure feet. He's doing it on limping feet in such a way that he's not even certain of his footing over here or his footing over here. So it carries with it the idea of limping, of of an unsteadiness, an uncertainty, but it also carries the meaning of hopping, as in a bird. And I really think that that's probably 
getting best at the root of what Elijah is saying is this idea of hopping as though a bird would hop. You know what birds are like. We've all watched birds and many birds, most birds I would say, when you watch a bird's activity, one thing about a bird's activity is just how spastic it is. I mean, they're here, they're there, they're boom, boom, back, forth, over here, on this limb, on that limb. They don't sit still for three seconds. They're just constantly one limb to another, one space to another, one seed to another. You know, there are birds that, you know, predator bird, birds of prey that are different. But when we think of birds, I think what comes to mind is just this flitting, fleeting, teeter-tottering, back and forth, never spending any time anywhere. And I think that's really the root of what Elijah is accusing them of. How long will you hop back and forth between two opinions? Between two different opinions. This vacillating, hopping, wavering. We think of the words of James from James chapter 1 where James says that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the unstableness of the double-minded man is like the unstableness, the uncertainty of the Israelites who hop from here to there, back and forth between two different opinions. Jesus, of course, said, no man can have two masters. You can't. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. And so he says you're like these hopping birds between these two different opinions. Now what does he mean by different opinions? Does he mean that Christians can't have opinions that are different from each other? It's not what he's mean. He's not talking about opinions, about just any old thing. I think a better way to think about what Elijah is contrasting here is to use the phrase, not different opinions, but to use the phrase truth claims. How long will you hop back and forth between diametrically opposed truth claims? So what, what, do, I, what do I mean by truth claim? What I mean by truth claim is simply that. What you claim to be ultimately true. All of us have truth claims. We live in a world that is full of truth claims. And what that just means is uh, another word for it might be worldview. But what that just means is the structure of beliefs that you believe to be true to reality. The system of, of understanding and beliefs that you believe to be true to reality. We live in a world full of truth claims. We always have. Humans have always lived in a world. Culture has always been a system of truth claims. What's different about our society today than most societies previously is that we live in a world today of increasing truth claims that have no correlation to reality. Humans have always lived in, in a world and societies in which truth claims were made, but at least in Western society, the, the vast majority of our history has been such that there's one basic truth claim, and that is the truth claim of Christianity. You may not believe it, you may not follow it, you may not obey it, you may not be converted, but that's always been the dominant worldview of Western culture. Today, obviously we live in a very different world today, and the world in which we live today has a growing number of truth claims that correspond in no way to reality. I don't need to explain this to you, but just to throw out one example, the truth claim that men can have menstrual cycles, okay? 
has nothing to do with reality, but that's the world in which we live, in which an increasing number of truth claims have no correspondence to reality at all. But Elijah is not in our culture, he's in his own. And he's saying, how long are you going to waver between these two truth claims? And the two truth claims are, we can take it to mean the truth claim of Yahweh and the truth claim of Baal. So perhaps it's helpful to think of these two truth claims as two religions. And let me just explain what I mean by religions. Because we think of that word religion, and sometimes we think, you know, old-time religion, this, this system of, of how we worship God, and, and, those, and it can mean that. But let's think of religion in terms of what's in your notes here, a system of beliefs or truth claims that do at least four things, at least four things. And here's the four things that they do. Number one, a religion explains your existence. A religion explains how you got here how humanity got here, how the earth got here. It may explain that through creation. It may explain that through evolution. It may explain that through a pantheon of gods. But a religion explains how you got here. Number two, a religion defines right and wrong. A religion tells you what is morally right and what's morally wrong. Number three, a religion proclaims what is worthy of your time, your efforts, your desires, your aspirations, etc. A religion tells you what you should aspire for. And number four, a religion teaches how a follower of such a religion attains or fails to attain a higher or a better state of existence. Okay, So those four things, at least those four things, are what religions do. So Elijah says, how long are you going to hop between these two religions, truth claims, different opinions, diametrically opposed points of view? How long are you going to hop between the two? Because clearly... They cancel one another out. Clearly, they cannot both be true. You know, it's like the uh, the bumper stickers that's been around for generations now. The coexist bumper stickers, in which the word is spelled out in the different symbols of different world religions. You know, now what does that mean? What does it? What does coexist in terms of religion mean? If coexist means that people of different faiths should be kind to one another and polite to one another, absolutely, we should coexist with every religion. But that's not what it means. What coexist means is that all of those truth claims hold equal claim on truth. And that's absurd. It's absurd that Islam can coexist with Christianity both on an equal playing field of truth. They cannot both be true. Christianity cannot be true and Buddhism be true. And so Elijah is saying, how long are you going to do this? How long are you going to hop between two diametrically opposed faiths, religions, that cannot possibly both be true? But even as he asks the question, he's letting us know that the question answers itself. It's one of those self-answering questions. Because even as he asks the question, look how he asks it. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him, and if Baal, follow Him. Notice Lord, capital L-O-R-D. You should cultivate, you should train your your mind that when you read your Scriptures and you see capital L-O-R-D, you should stop and you should remind yourself that is the covenant name of Yahweh. That's not just saying God or Lord, that's saying God's covenant name 
from the instance at the bush with, with Moses in Exodus 3 where God says, I am that I am. Who should I say sent me? Tell them I am that I am sent you. In other words, Moses, tell them that the only self-existent being sent you. God is the only self-existent being. God is the only being that has no needs. God is the only being that exists in and of Himself, having been created by nothing, created by no one, dependent upon nothing for His continued existence. No other being is like that. So Elijah, even by asking the question, how long are you going to go between the self-existent eternal being and Baal? Even by asking the question, it, it automatically answers itself. Well, the answer there is clear. If there's a self-existent being, then clearly He is God. And nothing else can be. But He says, how long will you go limping between these two systems? Now, what is this hopping between the two? Why are they doing this? And how, if it's so clear, if it's so logical that God, Yahweh cannot be God and Baal God, if it's so obvious that, that clearly either Yahweh created us or Baal did or neither, but they can't both be true. If that's so clear, then why are the people hopping back and forth between the two? Why the, the over here and over there? Well, we get our answer to that, I think, in Second Kings 17. You may want to flip there. If not, we won't be here long, but you may want to flip to 2 Kings 17. In 2 Kings 17, what's happening is this. Elijah's going to call down fire. The fire's going to come. They're going to kill the prophets. We know the story. And the people, after the fire comes, they're going to declare Yahweh is God. This, should we say partial repentance, will be enough to stay God's hand and the rains will return. But this repentance was not genuine. It was not authentic. It was not lasting at all in any way because the people continue in exactly the same trajectory that they've been on for some generations now. And so that brings us to 2 Kings 17 where the writer again pauses to give us some information about the hearts of the people of Israel. And so we see here in verse 33, this follows a section and which is talking about foreign gods and foreigners and how they worship these foreign idols and everything. Verse 33 says, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. Now that's a statement you could sort of pass right over quickly if you weren't paying attention. But that says a whole lot. It says they feared, and the they there is not foreigners. The they is the Israelites. They here is Israel, uh, God's people, right? Because it goes on to say, after the manner of the nations from whom they had been carried away. God's clearly talking about Israel here. So the Israelites feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. Verse 34, to this day they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord. It just said that they did fear the Lord. And then it says that they do not fear the Lord. So this takes us back to a discussion we had some weeks ago on a Thursday night in which we, we differentiated between the two types of the fear of the Lord. There's the fear of the Lord that a heart has when they know that God is real, He exists, He created them. But they don't know His character. They don't know Him. They don't know Him to be good and compassionate and merciful and loving. 
but they do know him to be creator. And so if you know that God exists and that he created you, but you don't know his character in the sense that you don't have relationship with him, then you will fear him or you will be afraid of him. That's the only reaction you can have. So you can fear God in an an ungodly way, which is to be afraid of him, fearing him because you don't know his character to be compassionate and loving and forgiving and good. So the Israelites knew that he was real. They knew that he was the actual creator God. But they don't know him to be good. And so therefore they're afraid of him. And not knowing him to be good, they seek the goodness that they want from other places. So you follow that scenario. They know that God is real. And they know that he is to be feared but they do not know him to be good. And so desiring goodness, they seek goodness elsewhere. I.e. Baal. So that's how they're hopping between these two different opinions. That's how they're hopping between two religions that cannot both be true. Is that they know deep in their heart that Yahweh exists. They have not strayed so far down the path that they've convinced themselves that God isn't real. They know He's real, but they don't know Him to be good. And so therefore, they seek goodness from Baal and Asherah and on down the list. So Elijah's question is, how long? How long will you go back and forth between the two? Because you know God to be real, so you won't just come out and blaspheme Him. You know that you cannot just deny Him because you know He's real. But you don't know the goodness of His heart, so you constantly try to supplement God or improve upon God by finding the goodness that you desire from earthly sources, namely, in their case, Baal. That's how they're hopping back and forth. Which, which, by the way, that is the root of all sin. The root of all sin is the failure to believe in God's goodness. And so not believing in His goodness, you seek goodness from earthly sources. All sin comes from that. All sin comes from the, the heart that doesn't fully believe in the goodness of God and thinks that we need to improve upon God or supplement God with this other form of goodness that we're not going to have in any other way. Remember last week we talked about false gods? And we said that this week we talked more about it. It come into play more uh, this week. But what we said last week about false gods was this, is that a false god is anything, anything in your life that you think is necessary for happiness, security, or peace. Anything. Those three things come from God and God alone. But when our hearts think that we need something other than God for happiness, security, or peace, that's your God. That's your false God. And so these Israelites think that, yes, Yahweh's real. We cannot blaspheme Him. We cannot just deny Him. But nevertheless, we need Baal for 
this other goodness, i.e. rain or dew or fertility or all the other sort of things that went along with their false belief system. So this is how they're going between the two. Because the failure to believe in God's goodness is the root of all sin, which is why Scripture's prescription for the defeat of sin in our life is, is what it is. Have you ever thought deeply about Scripture's prescription about how it is that you defeat sin in your life? You don't defeat sin in your life. We've talked about this recently. We don't, you don't defeat sin in your life by reminding yourself of the destructiveness of sin. Sin is destructive. This is true. The Bible tells you that, and you should know that. You should know that sin is destructive. But that's not how you defeat it. You don't defeat sin by meditating on the wrath of God. God's wrath is going to come down on me if I don't abandon this sin. That's not how you defeat sin. You defeat sin not by filling your mind with thoughts of the wrath of God or the destructiveness of sin. You defeat sin by filling your mind with the thoughts of the goodness of God. Remember we talked about a greater desire. You defeat a lesser sinful desire by replacing it with a greater, stronger desire. Same sort of thing. Or John chapter, uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2 and chapter 4. Here, look at this in your, in your notes. Here I want to connect together two things that John says in his first epistle that he says them about three chapters apart, but they, they connect together so well. Let me just make this connection for you. First John chapter 2, verse 15. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. In other words, John says, the things of the world, false gods. John says, don't love them. Don't love false gods. Don't love those earthly things that want to tell your heart, you have to have me in order to be happy, secure, or peaceful. Don't love them. Instead, he says, have perfected love. By this, love is perfected with us, meaning love of the Father, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what John is saying there is, don't love the false gods of the world. Instead, love God with this perfect love that comes into your heart by filling your thoughts with the truth of His goodness. That there is no punishment for those who are in Christ. The love of Christ is perfectly accepting, perfectly loving for those who are in Christ. Fill your heart with those thoughts and that dispels or displaces the love of the world. So that's Scripture's prescription for how we defeat sin. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.